Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are in the book of Ezra as we are kind of actually wrapping up the Old Testament here. We started a few years ago with this, although we took some time off. Started Genesis, started working our way through. We didn't hit every single book, but kind of hitting all the main events and trying to break it down, put it all into context. Uh, <clears throat> what we're into right now is the uh, Jewish people uh, starting to leave uh, Babylonian captivity now and going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city, getting it ready for the Messiah to come. It's about 500 years before Jesus comes at this point. Um, a lot of stuff is happening at the same time of Ezra, as we pointed out already. Daniel is still writing and doing his thing as this is happening. Ezra's, uh, Nehemiah is here at the same time. Haggai the prophet, uh, Zechariah, the prophet is happening. Malachi uh, is also happening, which is the last book in the Old Testament, you know, as it's said in most Bibles. Again, this is not chronological, but this is kind of it. This is the wrap-up. This is, once we get through these next two books and all the books that are connected to it, um, we're pretty much done with the Old Testament, and now, boom, and then a little boy is born in a manger, and then we go off into the New Testament. Then we'll jump back into the New Testament, go through that, and a few years later, we'll probably go back to the Old Testament and do it all again. Why? Because you'll forget everything I've told you by then. All right, so we are now in uh, Ezra, the fifth chapter, verse one. Now, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem at the in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. And then we went and we looked at uh, uh, Haggai and Zechariah and what they had said. And now we're back and we're going to continue. Now, then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, son of whatever, set to work to rebuild the house of God. That's the point. They're all set to work. And the prophets of God were with them. Who's with them? Haggai and Zechariah. So they're all together. This is a major event now that is happening. Not all the Jews are there. There's really a remnant. There's a small group that have gone back. God put it on their hearts. They went and they are working, rebuilding the temple. Still, uh, Jews are throughout the uh, Persian Empire at this time. Again, Daniel is even this. Daniel is still in uh, Babylon or Persia now and, and uh, uh, part of all of that. Um, so now at that, so they're back there building. Now, at that time, Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates and Seltzar, whatever, asked, they come in and they say, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, what are the names of the people constructing this building? We want names. We want names, people. These were like serious bureaucrats. All right. Who gave you permission? Who are your names? What are your people? Because they didn't want them doing this. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius uh, and his written reply received. So now we've gone from King Cyrus. Now we're into King Darius. Now, so the guys don't like this. They're sending off a letter to uh, Darius. And this is a copy of the letter that the governor of Trans-Euphrates and his buddy and their associates, the kings, the officials of Trans-Euphrates, sent to King Darius. The report they sent him read as follows. Here is the letter. Uh, to King Darius, the king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We question the elders and ask them, hey, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore the structure? We also ask them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. 
Here's the answer they gave us, which is basically, all right. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished, who was Solomon. Uh, but because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. That was the result of God's judgment on them because they wouldn't obey. They got swept away into Babylonian captivity. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the house of God, which was prophesied 150 years plus before Cyrus was even born. The prophet named him, Isaiah named him by name. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God. In other words, when Nebuchadnezzar had come in, he'd taken all those things and he gave it back to them, which Nebuchadnezzar, he says, was taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them, uh, gave them to a man named Shezbazar, whom he appointed, had appointed governor, and he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God. Of God on its site. So this Shezbazar character came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under the construction, but has not yet been finished. And then they're griping, saying, now if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of Babylon to see if King Cyrus really did all this. If they really did, in fact, issue a decree to rebuild this house of God, because apparently these guys hadn't heard anything about it. And then let the king send us his decision in this matter. So now chapter six. King Darius then issued an order and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbandana in the province of Media, uh, and this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, so you get what's going on? They basically said, these guys say they got permission. How do we know they got permission? Darius, who's thinking, you know, I don't know, let's check it out. Search the records. Everybody wants to see what's in the records. Uh, precedent is a big deal in most cultures. It's the thing that keeps everything from totally falling to pieces. Not that it's always good, but that gives stability. Even to this day in our country, precedent and the you know, Supreme Court and everything, they want to know what the precedent is. Well, what have the rulings been before? I always think, who cares? Just rule on it now. But they want to make sure it's consistent with precedent so that there's structure. All right? So that's what they did. So then they find this scroll. The scroll says, In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide with three courses of large stones and one of, timber, uh, one of timbers. The cost would be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon to be returned to their places in the temple in Jerusalem and are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tetsunai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethesbazani, whatever, and you, their fellow officials in that province, stay away from there. So that's his ruling. So here's what we found. He had permission, so basically tell him, bug off, leave him alone. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, in more, to stick it into your eyeball, I hereby decree that what you are to do for these elders of Jews in the construction of this house of God, the expenses of these men are to be paid fully out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates. <laughs> these are the guys from Trans-Euphrates whining about it. So he says, leave them alone, let them do it, and you guys pay for it. Wow. Okay. 
So I mean, if this God is really behind these guys, opening doors, giving them permission, giving them the money. Remember, originally Cyrus told people to give them money. Everybody was leaving. All your, all your neighbors should give you money to rebuild this temple. So he says, whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven and wheat, salt, wine, and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given to them daily without fail so they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. So basically he says, look, you give them whatever they need and even if they need uh, animals to sacrifice, you give it to them. Now, that's just Darius making this ruling. At this point, it's not really a sacrifice if somebody else is paying for it. Do <laughs> you guys follow that? You know, so, but this is just what it's really. For example, it would be like someone handing you $200 and say, put this in the offering. Okay, I guess I will, praise the Lord. I mean, you know, that doesn't really hurt you. Doesn't do you any good because you're not, it's not costing you anything. In fact, there's a precedent, speaking of precedents in the Old Testament, where David said, I will not give God something that doesn't cost me something. If it's not costing you in your worship, you're not worshiping. So anyway, for the Wattsworth worth department. So <laughs> he put everything on these guys. Therefore, I decree that if anyone changes this edict, a slight penalty will be enforced. A beam is to be pulled from his house, and he is to be lifted up on it and impaled on it. Holy cow, how about just a fine? You know what I'm saying? And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. So after they pull a beam from the house and they're impaled on it, then they're supposed to wreck the house. Don't mess with these people. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Hiya! Well, now that's a big deal. Okay, I mean, God, these guys write, Derry says, who are these people? We don't know if they got permission, check it out. Derry says, yeah, not only they got permission, but you gotta pay for it, provide everything they need, including the sacrifices, and if you mess with them, we're gonna pull a beam out of your house, stick it through you, stick you up in the air, and then wreck your house. I'm sure these guys really regretted ever asking the question. Now, just out of theory, we're not exactly on the timeline here, but anybody, can anybody offer one of the reasons why Darius was so uh, pro-Israel at this point? Anybody have a clue? I'd ask the campuses over there, but they can't talk to me yet. We're working on that, by the way. Uh, who said that? Good man, Daniel. Give that man a cigar, Lathan. Anyway, so, Daniel. Darius is the guy who threw Daniel in the lion's den. What happened? He lived. Darius was blown away. He was impressed about the God of Israel. And so he's very much worshiping the God of Israel. So it's highly likely that happened before this. We don't know for sure, but it certainly would make sense because that's why he is so intense at this point. Yeah, number one, we do have president. Number two, you better do this or blah, 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 blah. Don't mess with this God who at this point Darius is totally impressed by the power of God because of what happened when he threw Daniel into the lion's den. All right, there you go. Brilliant, brilliant, simply brilliant. Okay. Now, then because of the decree of King Darius had sent, Tatani, the governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Buzanai, and their associates carried it out with diligence. I'll bet they did. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. 
They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Adarxerxes, kings of Persia. Now they're jumping in the timeline here. Adarxerxes doesn't even exist at this point. But uh, we will read in the next, well, coming up, the book of Nehemiah was under King Adarxerxes and Cape gave him the permission to rebuild the entire city. Anyway, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So again, they jumped this timeline thing. The temple was finished during the King Darius. The walls and everything else of the city weren't completed until after Adarxerxes. And for some reason, they skipped Xerxes. I don't know why, they just do. We'll pick up Xerxes in a minute because it was Cyrus Darius Xerxes who was in the movie 300. You know, the crazy Persian, you know, God King, oh, trying to take over. Anyway, it's just a movie. But anyway, uh, but it's based on this true story of, of Xerxes trying to take Greece. He never did get it. Uh, and then Xerxes. all right? Uh, he skipped here because Xerxes didn't have a real big hand in what happened in the temple. But he has a big deal to do with what happens to the Israelites, which we're about to find out. All right, so the temple was completed on the third day, blah, blah, blah. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. So the temple's finished. Uh, they still got lots of other work to do. That doesn't happen until later, but this part is done. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lamb, rams as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats for each of the tribes of Israel, and they installed the priests and their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. Suddenly now they are being very careful to obey the book, the law of Moses. Up until the time they got pulled away into captivity, they just hardly paid attention to it at all. They were sinning unbelievably gross ways. So by now, this has had a big impact on them. Now they're being real sticklers to it, to a point that I still think is a little ridiculous. But remember, this is what's driving them back. And by the time Jesus comes... These people are major sticklers about things. They weren't before that. But, this, but that's where you get the Pharisees and stuff, remember? And then Jesus comes along and says, you guys, what is your problem? They were over-stickling on everything. So it's just the tendency of human beings. We tend to swing from one pendulum to the other. You know, you get people on this side, and I'll say, everybody swings to the other side. I've seen this about Christianity for most of my life. People tend to, you know, one thing comes along and then somebody swings it the other way. And, you know, you've got, you know, preachers who were, you know, preaching the gospel, but they got into just condemning everybody to hell all the time. Fire and brimstone preach. Everything was hell, 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 And then we wanted, well, let's balance this out with grace. So now we swung way over to the other grace side to where God doesn't want anybody to feel bad about anything. We don't want anyone to feel guilt or shame. You still hear this. This is the big thing in Christianity. No guilt or shame, which irritates the snot out of me. Because I have this weird theory that if you do something guilty, you should feel guilty. If you do something shameful, you should feel some shame. Now you can repent and have God forgive you. But this thing trying to create people, no, no one should feel guilt or shame. The only people who don't feel guilt or shame are psychopaths. I don't think Jesus said go into all the world and create a bunch of psychopaths. Anyway, that's this problem. I'm trying to pull it back. And undoubtedly, at some point, it'll swing like this and everybody will be telling everybody going to hell. I don't know. It is what it is. So, uh, where are we? Blah, 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 blah. So they got real sticklers. You know, we got to get everything back according to the law of Moses. 
Now, on the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and the Levites purified themselves, were all ceremonial clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from the exile ate it together with all those who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. It becomes a real big deal now to have nothing to do with the Gentiles, nothing to do with them, which they weren't really supposed to have much to do with them in the begin with. But they got really sticklers about this, okay, to the point they wouldn't hardly touch anybody. Uh, uh, you know, anyway, we'll get into that more. You'll see what I mean. Uh, seven days uh, they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. All right, so there we have it. Now, the very next verse, chapter seven, verse one. After these things, during the reign of Adderxerxes, wait a minute, we skipped the king. What happened to Xerxes, who was in the movie? All right. Well, you pick up Xerxes by turning over to the book of Esther, which is what we're going to do now. So we're going to flip over the book of Esther. We're trying to do this chronologically. Again, there's a whole bunch of books of the Bible that just, boom, all mesh at this time. This is a big deal when this is coming back and there's a whole bunch of books in the Bible and all this stuff. And again, really, we're really coming to the end of what's written in the Old Testament. The next major event is the birth of Jesus. Okay, so now we're talking about Esther. Esther chapter one, because we want to put things in order. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Okay, which they skipped here because they thought, ah, who cares about him? It had nothing to do with the building of the temple. But it's still chronological, so we're going to read about Xerxes. So, the Xerxes who ruled over the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the uh, citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For full 180 days, now when these people partied, they did not mess around. For a and part of the reason why when they did get together, it was such a big stinking deal. Even in Jesus' time, when someone got married, it was like days, you know, because people didn't have cars, you know? You ain't gonna come all this way. We're hanging out for a while, all right? So that's what they did. They come from all over the place, and when they get together, it's a big stinking deal. Well, in this case, it's even more exaggerated. So just 180 days just for him to display the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and, and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, then the king decides to give a banquet, which lasted for seven days. The one banquet. Ugh. Talk about Thanksgiving. In the enclosed garden of the king's palace, that's where it all happened, for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. Places decked out. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of whatever porphyry is. Marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. I mean, this is first class yo mama stuff. It's a big deal. Everything's just the wealth of the world is laid out before them. And they're hanging out at the king's place. Wine was served in goblets of gold each one different from the other. Uh, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way 
For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. So they're all copping a big buzz. Okay, they got the best wine of the day. And the king said, let it flow, baby, let it flow. So they're pouring this and everybody's just, wow, big party, seven days nonstop. Then Queen Vashti, who is obviously the queen of Xerxes, also gave a banquet for the ladies. The ladies auxiliary doing their thing in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the guys got their party. They're watching ESPN. They're hanging out. And the ladies have their little deal off to the side. Well, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, (laughs) he's feeling no pain. And he's in a rather cheery mood. So he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. And it mentions the seven eunuchs. I can't even pronounce these names. Seven years, go and bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, these women were super babes, okay? What they would do is they would go out and they would scour their entire kingdom. And this is a big kingdom at this point. Persia, I mean, they, they ruled the world as well. They went everywhere. Their job was they would send men out to find the absolutely drop-dead, most gorgeous babes they could find to become part of the king's harem. Now, you didn't really have a choice in this matter. If they picked you, it was you, okay? And uh, it's one of the reasons why God spoke to Israelites and said, you don't want a king. You don't want a king because kings are going to do this to your daughters and stuff. Oh, we want a king. That's exactly what they did in those days. God knew it. And uh, they would have these women, all these virgins would come and gather uh, as part of this uh, harem. And then the king would have sex with these women. And the ones he really liked, he put in a special category. And the ones he didn't like so much, he's pretty much done with them. But they, you know, they were still well taken care of. I mean, it was a catch-22. One of the big things in that time was, how are we going to feed ourselves, right? If you got picked, at least, you know, even though you only had sex one time in your life, <laughs> hopefully it was wonderful, uh, then you, uh, that was it for you, but now you were part of his, you know, used category of chicklets. And... Uh, and uh, hopefully he'd call you again, but if he doesn't call you, you're, you're still there. You're still part of the harem. <laughs> I'm not making this stuff. This is what they did, okay? Now, what's really funny is when you, when you read the children's version of Esther, what they usually say, they make it sound like a, uh, like a Disney movie, you know, that Esther, the king, went looking for the most beautiful woman in the land, and then he found Esther, and she was part of this great big beauty contest, and whoever was the most beautiful, then she picked him, and they lived happily ever after. Yeah, kind of. That's not exactly. Of course, if you told the children what really happened, they'd be staring at you for hours, trying, oh my God, they did that to people? So, uh, so anyway, these are like super babes. These are the Creme de la creme, the best looking woman in the world were generally not the wives of the men of the land, not the regular men. They were carted off, some of them by the hundreds. Even Solomon himself had uh, 700 of these girls and 300 more that reached the status of wife. A thousand women. 
what do you do? Well, they thought of things to do, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, so that was it. So anyway, the most gorgeous. So she, this queen, is the super babe of all the babes. She's the queen. So he's buzzing. He's got this thing. So he says, go get the queen because I want everybody to see her because she's so drop dead stinking gorgeous. So that's what happens. But when the attendants, verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Now, we don't know why she refused to come. What was her problem? She said, well, she probably didn't want to be drug in in front of these men and be stared at. Maybe, you got to remember, this isn't 2015 here. This is a long time ago. Generally, when you refuse the king, you were in danger of your very life. Now, what had her panties in a bunch? We don't know. But she refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. And he names their names, which I don't want to read. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had uh, special access to the king and were in the highest place. So basically, he calls his top advisors. And he said, what are we going to do? I called for the queen. She didn't come. It was a big stinking deal. Yeah. So he says, verse 15, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mumbakan, one of these guys, replied in the presence of the king and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of the provinces of King Xerxes. Let me tell you why they're upset and concerned. For the queen's conduct will be known to all the women. So they will despise their husbands and tell them to kiss off and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought for him and she didn't have to come, so I don't got to listen to you either. <laughs> and well, they can't have that. So this very day, the Persian median women of the nobility who have heard about Queen's conduct will res respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. And so they... This couldn't stand. We can't, we can't have this kind of disrespect going on. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then the king's edict is and then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The kings and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as this guy proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in his own script, to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. And everybody knew the status and basically announced that Queen Vashti is queen no more. Quite frankly, the lady got off easy. I mean, he could have easily killed her Man, they were doing this just like a couple hundred years ago in England, you know, <laughs> and cut off the girl's head if they wanted a new queen. They'd find ways of disposing of people. So anyway, so that's what happens. That's what sets up this event with Esther. Let us continue. So chapter two, later when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, <laughs> we don't know how long that took, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So at some point, okay, he's calmed down. He remembers her. He kind of misses her. But now he's queenless. The man needs a queen. He's a king and he's a queen. 
Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. So here they go again. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadels of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this appealed, advice appealed to the king. And he followed it. So he basically says, again, the children's version, there was this big beauty contest. Not really. These guys would just come, you, you, here's a hot one, grab her. And, and then they all came in and they're part of, you know, this pool. That's the king and whoever pleased him the most and whoever he got to like uh, would either fall into the category of the ones that got called again or the one he liked the best would become the queen. And by the way, uh, these women, virtually all Bible scholars agree, were probably 13, 14, 15, maybe 16 years of age. That's the world. That's the way the world works, okay? And, and truth is, even historically, this idea of people, you've heard me rail on this, I'm certainly not advocating that young, but I'm certainly an advocate of getting married younger. You know, you start 20, 21, you get married for heaven's sakes, so you find somebody you want to marry. Some people waiting until they're almost 30 to get married, I think it's an absurd nonsense. But throughout the history of mankind, routinely people got married in their teens, early teens. Even most Bible scholars believe Mary, the mother of Jesus, was probably about 14 when she gave birth to Jesus. A little shocking to us, but that's the way it was, all right? So now we start learning about uh, this girl whom this book is about. Uh, and by the way, this is the only, there's only two books in the Bible that never mention the word God. This is one of them. This is strictly telling the story of what happened. Uh, there's no reference, nobody prophesies, nobody doesn't, doesn't even say the word God through the entire book. There's only other one book that I'm aware of that does that. Anybody know which one it is? Song of Solomon. Well, done. Okay. So, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew by, of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordechai. Mordechai. Mordechai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Hadassah. And this is Esther. That's her name, Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father or mother. Well, everybody has a father or a mother. What it means is they died, all right? So this girl was also known as Esther. This is the Esther. She was lovely in form, and features. Uh, other, what does this translation say? She was lovely. Oh, she had a lovely figure. Yeah. That's, even that's a little soft. What they're saying is she had a great bod. Okay. And the other translations point that out. So this one, mine's just a little bit different than yours. These NIVs. I don't know what the heck. Every different one has a different translation. This one says she had a love, was lovely in form. Oh, yeah, very lovely, very nice form. She had a great figure, and she was gorgeous. And Mordecai had taken her in his own daughter when the father and mother died. When the king's orders and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hezai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace uh, and entrusted to Hegai, however you say his name, 
who had charge of the harem. He was the head harem dude, undoubtedly a eunuch. He did not have a pair. I don't know if he was born with them, but had them removed, whatever. They would have these guys. They, would be, they were actually highly trained, well-educated, oftentimes very wealthy, very powerful men, uh, and they were of great value. Now, personally, I'd rather keep my boys, but anyway, these guys would, some of them willingly surrender it to become in this class of highly educated and well-treated men. It's just by having their boys removed, uh, they were no threat to the women under their care because they couldn't do anything about it. All right, so, um, so this is this guy. Now, the girl pleased him, so he liked Esther. She was a nice girl, obviously dropped a gorgeous babe, uh, won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Uh, now, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Don't tell them you're a Jew. Because they don't remember, these guys conquered all these lands. They had everybody together. They're just trying to make everybody Persians. They didn't really care your religious background. She hid it from them. Uh, all they know is this is a drop-dead gorgeous chick. Well, every day, Mordecai would walk back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So he was concerned about her. Now, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, it's your turn, uh, if you get my drift, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. So, Esther gets seven girls who their job is nothing but for a solid year do every version of beauty treatments and oils and cosmetics and perfumes and just pamper her for 12 months nonstop just to get her ready for one night. You know, I mean, I'm all for getting ready for a date. All right, you get a little primmed up, kind of ready to go on this hot date. A year. They, you know, it was like, now they were treated kind of like pieces of meat. But talk about slow roasting. Uh, so anyway, for, <laughs> for 12 months, they're slow roasting this chick. Getting her as, I mean, your skin's got to be pretty glowing by that time, I would think. So anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So she could take whatever of her own, I don't know, at this age, they're teddy bears, I have no idea. But anyway, they got to take whatever into the king's, I don't know why it's even important, why they mentioned it. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to take uh, to the care of Shazgaz. Shazgaz! Come here, Shazgaz! So to the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So what, you see what happens here? They would, after getting basted <laughs> for a year, would finally have their turn to go be with the king. After the king had his way with her that night, then she would return the next day, but she went out into a different part because now she was no longer a virgin. She had now been, she's a used concubine. New and used concubines here at Saddam's Palace, you know. So this is what happened. So if she comes, she gets used, now she goes in the used category. All right. Now, she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So some of these, he really liked. He'd remember her name. Write down that one chick's name. She was hot. Bring her back. 
So that was much. And if they never called you back, that was it for you. Now, the good news is you are in a palace of the most wealthiest man on the face of the earth, well taken care of for the rest of your life. But many of them, unless they got pregnant that night, which I'm sure many of them didn't, uh, you know, that, that was your life. So it could be a lot worse. A lot of people died from diseases and lack of food and everything else. So anyway, it's just a bizarre, bizarre time of life. So anyway, when the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, to go to the king, she didn't ask for anything other than what Hegei, the king's eunuch, was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Okay? So, finally, uh, it's her turn for the night. I assume these guys got a different chick every night. These guys lived whatever they wanted. They were treated like stallions. They just, every sexual desire, everything, nothing was off limits to these. They were incredibly powerful men who were to be greatly feared because they'd kill people like this for just looking at them cross-eyed. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So it's basically Christmas. They're having this big party. They've got a new queen. She, he was so impressed with this younger and undoubtedly young 13, 14, 15, whatever age, gorgeous. Uh, now, it says that he pleased her. We, we don't know what that means. Some people say, well, that means she, you know, had sex better than somebody. I doubt they're all virgins. They don't know anything about sex other than, you know, here we go. Uh, but she was probably very nice, but just cute. Right? The person, who knows, whatever. Well, anyway, he liked her. She was gorgeous. She's the new queen. Well, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Uh, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate, assassinate King Xerxes. By most of these guys got offed these kings. They'd rule for a while, somebody'd kill him, somebody else would take over, somebody'd kill him, take it off. I mean, it was constant. Shakespearean play, all right? But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated, found to be true, the two officials were hanged on gallows. Uh, it says, what is yours? I got to get the right translation here. They were impaled on poles. That's really the right way. Oftentimes, we're telling the stories, they were hanged on gallows like they were, no. They stuck them, they impaled them. That's what they would do. They'd take a pole, stick them like a, like a barbecue, or what do you call those things? Shish kebab. Human shish kebabs. And they'd stick them up, and they were all shish kebab. And that's what happened to these two guys. So, uh, and it says, all this is recorded in the book of the annals of the, annals, annals, dear Lord. Too much sex talk here. And annals in the presence of, give me a break. You gotta do this for a living, see what happens. In the presence of the king, it's in the annals, not the other version, uh, of the king. So, 
All this is recorded, all this is a fact. So, now this is an incredible turn of events. Mordecai has this girl taking care of her. She's gorgeous. They come, grab all these virgins, as was, as was the custom of the day. They grab the most gorgeous ones. Off they went to become part of this harem. She winds up becoming the queen uh, of Persia at this point. So we're talking a major power shift that has happened here in favor of the family. But of course, no one knows her family. She hasn't told anybody. Nobody knows she's a Jew. Okay, so that's yet to be revealed. And, uh, and then Mordecai, because he's hanging out at the gate, you know, he's just kind of wondering how she's doing, how she's doing. I'm a sweet guy. I mean, it got, obviously he really loved this girl, you know, his niece or whatever. And, and uh, was always looking at, well, well, he's there hanging at the gate. He overhears these guys saying, we're going to kill this guy. I'm sick of him. And reports it. They find out it. They shish kebab those two guys, you know. So, and they hear that Mordecai. Well, at this point, Mordecai isn't really rewarded for it. But, uh, you know, all these things are set into motion, which is going to come back in a major power play. Because what's going to happen as we get into this uh, during this time, remember, Daniel's still alive, but he's off in whatever province he's doing. Um, these guys, uh, Ezra and these prophets and stuff, they're all rebuilding the temple and stuff. They're not done. The next king, Artaxerxes, will help them finish up the whole thing. Uh, but there's a plot that comes into play where someone is going to try and have all the Jews killed. That's the plot that's building here. And it's amazing, it's like, you know, you know, the version of the Holocaust. They want to kill all the Jews, every Jew. And we're going to read how that happens, who the man is that uh, uh, runs the steel, and how God uses, even though the word God is never spoken of, how God uses this girl by giving her this incredible position to try and save her people. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal even uh, to this day. Uh, there's a, a, the, the festival of Purim, which Jews celebrate to this day, which we'll read about coming up. Um, in fact, I don't know how many of you watched, uh, what's the prime minister of Israel? What's Netanyahu, when he spoke to uh, Congress, he quoted the story, okay? He says, because the Persians once before tried to kill us all. Well, Iran is Persia. This is what Persia is. And he says that same threat that happened when Esther uh, uh, intervened is in play today. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very major part of the Jewish culture, this event that helped save this massive extinction of their people. It's really a fabulous, fabulous story. It's just not exactly a Disney story. <laughs> so it's really creepy from our Western standards, clearly. All of this is rather horrifying, but that's what these kings did. Uh, it is what it is. So next week, we'll pick it up, uh, and we'll start uncovering this plot to destroy the Jews, and we'll see how all these things start turning around. There's some fabulous quotes, some very famous quotes in the Bible that come up uh, as we continue to look at this. All right? God bless you guys, and we'll see you all Sunday. Bye-bye.